Word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the evening. Thanks for the good time of fellowship around the table and for the good food. Thankful for the fellowship of believers and what we share in common in Christ. We ask that we might be encouraged to think about the importance of the way we look at each other, even more so as we consider our study this evening. We thank you for it. Amen. So let's open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be here to introduce our study, but much of our study tonight, we're going to be in other places. We're going to take at least two weeks to develop a doctrine that's introduced here in this verse. Um, and I think once we kind of understand that a little bit better, then we can kind of come back and really consider what Paul is saying here in this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're looking at verse 23. And by the way, just to say, I don't think that this statement, even though it's treated as the beginning of another paragraph, I actually think that this is part of what he just was saying with testing prophecies. Because the very statement that he's going to make here seems to indicate that maybe somebody had suggested otherwise. Okay, that might have been a negative prophecy. Anyway, verse 23. And now God himself, or the God of peace himself, sanctify, that is set apart, make holy, but set apart, you entirely, that is the entirety of, and he's not talking about the entirety of the group, he's talking about the entirety of each individual of the group, okay? Which you see then, the whole of you, the spirit and the soul and the body, blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what we're going to be sitting on tonight is going to be looking at this idea that we are a spirit soul, and a body. Christendom, which includes, Christendom includes those who are believers and those who are not believers. It's people that are kind of generally under the banner of, of saying they're part of the church, part of their, some, somewhere or another they have a connection with Jesus Christ, but some of those people under the banner of Christendom, they think Jesus is uh, not God or not really a savior, or not risen, but they kind of fall under the general manner of Christendom. So this is something that whole Christendom holds to. But real genuine Christians also, this is important, real genuine Christians also hold different views on this verse. So maybe tonight as we go through this, you're going to go, ah, that's not where I am with this. Hopefully by the time we're done, uh, you'll maybe at least give it some thought. Because I would say in just going back over these verses and surveying what others teach on this, pulling the, I don't know what I have, 30 or 40 theologies on my shelf and different books on First and Second Thessalonians, and you start looking at these, and some of these people, I'd say most of them don't all share exactly the same view. And there's a, a multiplicity of views sometimes on this. The idea that you are God-created man, spirit, or with a spirit, with a soul, and with a body. You'd say, well, there's other things too. We have a heart. Yeah, and we have a mind. And I believe the heart and mind are related to these ideas of the spirit and soul and the body. There are places where these come together and there's different things that go on. And within you, you also have what we would call a will. A, a, a determiner, something you choose with. That, that actually goes to the heart. Scripture tells us that it's with the heart that we make these choices and decisions. And it's from... The body, the soul, and the spirit, 
Or as one of my professors used to tell us in seminary, if you're scriptural, you say the spirit, the soul, and the body, because that's the order he gives. But we as human beings tend to be ground up. So we go body, soul, and spirit. God looks at it top down, spirit, soul, and body. That those creating you a desire, a desire. I came out here really hungry tonight. I'm not hungry anymore. I ate a baked potato with chili on it and a whole bunch of other stuff, and I am stuffed. I almost was like, I wanted to go lay down and take a nap now, <laughs> you know, but that's a desire that kind of comes in part from my, my body produces that I get hungry in there, but there's also, and we'll probably look at it tonight, um, that that also is related to your spirit, your spirit, or excuse me, your soul also is involved in that. And we'll be looking at that. So is this the only passage that tells us that man is more than just um, well, let me back up again. Generally in Christendom, probably the more dominant view in Christendom is a man is simply material, that's your body, and immaterial. And the immaterial is, well, sometimes we call it soul, sometimes we call it spirit. It's all the same. Just They're just different ways of looking at the same thing. And I think what, we're gonna, what I'm going to try to demonstrate, just to let you know right now, is that the soul and the spirit are different. And I really think if you understand, and, and there are people that I grew up with that believe they're different, but you're like, but so what? Because they never ever explained why that difference is important and how that difference in any way affects you. And yet I can guarantee you, I've known a number of believers over the years that in understanding the difference between soul and spirit and how that affects them, it is it has actually blown open aspects of their Christian life and the way they live because now they have a different perspective uh, that they used to not be able to appreciate. So we have this statement here um, that says that there's body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes, just to let you know, you're going to come across the word spirit, the word body, or the word soul. Use those two because they're the ones in question mostly. And sometimes those are used in the big fancy word you use in English is the metonymy. That is, you're using a part for a whole. And we all get that because sometimes you're in a group and let's say, let's get a head count. Now, is that really what you're doing? Are you just looking to see how many heads are in the room? Or are you actually looking for people? How many people do we have here? So we're using a part, the head, for the whole. Or how many hands do we have? Let's, let's have a show of hands. Is it really? No, you're talking about the people. We all get that. Yeah, because if you hold up two hands, that doesn't count. You know, this is, there's just one of you. So you're only going to hold up one. And so that's a metonymy um, that comes in here. And sometimes both these terms, soul and spirit, refer to just your life, the principle that animates your nature. Yes. Sorry, do you have anyone waiting in your Zoom? I don't right now. I don't right now. No, I have a Kate Rob. Oh, I have Kate Robin's friend. I have that person in here. Okay, that's who I have it listed on here. Hi, Kate Robin's friend. <laughs> okay, uh, that's I just did that. I think I put it in that way so that I knew when they clicked on. Yeah, who this is? Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, sometimes it's like I don't know who is this person, you know. And my wife has to remind me. Oh, that's so and so. Oh, okay. Anyway, so spirit, soul, and body. And like I said, this is something we cannot cover in one evening. Some people maybe are more talented than I am, but I can't cover these in one night. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. 
What we're going to do, first of all, is I want to look at a set of scriptures that are going to tell us that soul and spirit are not the same. It's going to treat them as different. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. So just so you know what the verses are, we're looking here at the beginning. We're looking at verses that tell us that the, that the spirit and the soul are different. Now, we don't know how they're different yet. Why don't I tell you how they're different? We'll do that. Some people that they say that's the best way to teach is tell them what you're going to teach them and then teach it and then tell them again. So <laughs> um, the spirit is that part of you that God's given that allows you to think outside your realm of experience. You don't have to have experienced it. So it's like, can I taste God? Can I smell God? Can I go outside and just listen? I know there's people that say, I hear God in the raindrops and in the wind, but that's not really... You're not really hearing God. When we people when people say they want to hear from God, they actually want to hear a voice. They want Him to tell them something, you know. And we go outside and we don't hear that. And I can't feel God in the air, see. And so with my senses, I can't sense God that way. But with my spirit, I can relate to what God says. Now my soul, and this goes back to the Greeks. This is the way the Greeks understood it, and then we're going to see this borne out in some scriptures eventually. Your soul is is where the seat of your emotional senses or your sensory emotions are and it's where your senses are it's how your body relates to the world and experience and things in this way so we taste stuff and we smell stuff and we hear stuff and we see stuff and that's really what your soul is doing so soul is experiential oriented experience thinks experientially your spirit you're able to think beyond your realm of experience We'd be thankful you've got both of those. If all you did was this, you'd have problems because you've got to be able to relate to stuff in this world. So we're thankful for the soul. But we're also thankful for the spirit because it allows us to think about a God that's everywhere, but you can't see him? Really? See, that's something that's outside of our realm experience. You don't know anything that's everywhere, but unseen. And, you know, kids will go, well, the air, you can't see it. Actually, scientists can see air. They can actually identify the different things. Right, Ben? They can actually identify the atoms and stuff that are floating around, the gases and such. They can, they can figure that out, even though I can't see it with my, my visible eyes like this. And this air doesn't go on forever. There's a point at which there's no atmosphere. See? So just important for us to understand this. Okay, so there we are. A difference between soul and spirit. But let's go to Hebrews 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. It says, for the word of God is living. And then think about that. This book that you hold here, the, lab, the ink dried on the last word written in this book almost 2,000 years ago. And yet, it's still alive. It's still alive and that people still read it and it still speaks to our lives today. Not just moves us with something. Actually speaks exactly to where we find ourselves. So the word of God is living and it is powerful and it is sharper than a two-edged sword and it actually can pierce through so that it could even divide or part soul and spirit. Now then he goes on, both the joints and the marrow and is able to discern or act as a critic with regard to the things about which we get excited or enthusiastic and the things that are the notions that we have within our heart where we make decisions. Now, what he's saying here is the word of God can actually come in here 
and it can actually divide, it can actually help you distinguish between the spirit and the soul. But then the example right after that is of the joints and the marrow. Now, do you really take the Bible and use it to, to cut in the bone with the joint and separate from the marrow? No, we don't use the Bible to do that. But what he's showing us is where the marrow ends and the joint in the bone begins. Because your marrow, what is, what is your marrow, what's one of the things your marrow does? Yeah, it's alive. And there's a point at which the marrow ceases and the bone just exists. And, and if you knew what you were doing, you could go in there and you could try to cut out that marrow away from the bone. But the thing is, is where one actually stops and the other one begins, is it kind of hard sometimes to know? Yeah. And likewise, this is kind of what Paul's saying here, or the writer of Hebrews, if you don't think Paul wrote this, is that the word of God can do something that's very difficult. That is, it can actually draw that fine distinction that sometimes is hard for us to see between where the soul it begins and the spirit takes off or vice versa, where the spirit ends and the soul begins. It's hard sometimes for us to actually know. And I believe the last part of that verse is telling you why, why you need it to be able to do that because it's able to act as a critic for the things that you get excited about and the notions that you have in your heart, the heart where, is where you're making decisions. So Jesus Christ tells us this, and the apostles, that the heart is your decider. It's where you're making decisions. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this. And for these people who were, who were living in Judaism and, and just saying, I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore because it's just too hard to do church and be a Jew because the Jews won't let me hang out with them anymore because I identify with these Christians over here. So I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm good with God. So I'm just going to give up on that. And I'm just going to do the Jewish thing. This is what they're, that's what the book of Hebrews is dealing with. And that you, you can see how a person would say, oh, this all makes a lot of sense. This is really rational and it's exciting because now I can go to Sabbath dinner and have beef brisket with my mama and my daddy again. And I can do all of this stuff. And, and my boss, Levy, will give me my job back. And I can go back to laying brick in Jerusalem or something like this. And I, and I can re, or return to my life that I have been excommunicated from by my fellow Jews. And you can see how a person might make that kind of decision and get kind of excited. Hey, I, I want all that back. And so they get this notion then in your mind, the second part of it, where that's okay, isn't it? I mean, God understands. And you need the word of God to come in there and say, you're thinking with your soul and not with your spirit here. You think with both of them. But right now you're letting the soul take the lead. And we're going to be back in Hebrews maybe tonight. And we're going to see uh, at least two other things that Paul says about the soul in here. And you can tell that these people had a soul problem because they felt one way about something, even though in their spirit they knew something different. And isn't that where we have trouble? So soul and spirit are different. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two. First Corinthians chapter two. I'm let's just go back all the way up to verse nine here. First Corinthians chapter two, going back into verse nine. He says, But as it stands written, what no eye has seen, nor has an ear heard, now I seen an ear hearing, what are those? 
What are you doing with, your, what are your eyes and your ears? They senses. are senses, okay? So neither eye is heard, seen nor ear heard, nor has ever risen in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11, by the way, is you can learn something about the human spirit. For what human being or human or person or man knows what is truly in man except the man's spirit that's in him? In other words, I, I, my wife and I have been married 35 years. Now, there's a lot of time I can kind of figure out what she's thinking. I'm in a certain setting. I watch her. I'm like, I, she's thinking this right now. I can kind of tell by her expression. But you know what? 35 years, there's still times that she does certain things or certain things go on. And she takes me by surprise. And I'm like, well, I didn't know that that's what she was thinking. <laughs> because in reality, now she does have me figured out because I'm not that, I'm not that complicated. I'm pretty, uh, no. <laughs> Isn't that the joke that we men have problems figuring you women out because you're just more complicated than we are? Guys, we're all kind of, uh, no. anyway. That aside, okay, back to the, to the main study, pardon me. But the point that he's, that he's getting at here is, in reality, it's only your human spirit that knows really what's going on inside you. And when he uses the word know here, he uses the word oida. Now, we have a couple of different words in the New Testament for knowledge. One that's experiential knowledge. I've never climbed a mountain. I have never gone up Rainier. Ben has trudged, climbed up Everest not Everest, but would you like to do that? I don't know if you would. Uh, Rainier, to me, it might as well be Everest. Rainier, but he's done Rainier like that. I have no experiential knowledge of what that's like to, to go up something in the snow like that. I have this knowledge. I remember laying in bed 20 years ago reading a book that Mr. Crabtree loaned me about guys climbing, climbing mountains and things like this. And I'm laying nice and warm in my bed thinking about guys that are sleeping in, in, in uh, tents way high up at 20,000 feet and up in on big mountains like that. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad I'm just laying in bed and I'm not experiencing this. So I have a head knowledge. And that's the word that he uses here is that your spirit is able to take in these things related to you. And your spirit is able to know those things. What, what goes on inside your mind? I don't know what goes on in it. And that's a key at facet. That's, see, that's objective knowledge. It's not subjective. I don't have to experience it. I don't have to taste it, smell it, hear it, and so on and so forth. So that's, by way, a, a principle of what one of the things that your spirit does. But then he goes on in verse 12. He says, Now we do not have or have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit that's from God, in order that we might objectively know the things that have been graciously given to us from God. Which things then we speak not in human taught words of human wisdom, but in spirit taught words, comparing then the spiritual words with the spiritual things. And we can, if you want more details on why I say that, I can do that another time. Verse 14. But now here we come to this is the key verse, two key verses down here. And this is the one that throws us because how many of you have the word natural man in your Bible? Okay. Person. Natural person your Bible has. The word is natural is the word for soul. It's an adjectival form of the word soul. The word soul is suke. This is sukikas. And it means that which is soulish. So the soulish man. The soulish man does not welcome the things from the Spirit of God. For they're moronic to him. 
because he's not able to know them. And that word know is our word gnosko now. This is the other word. In other words, he can't have an experience with these things. So when you teach him the things of the word of God, because it's something that's outside the realm of his, his experience, and he only, can, he only really lives in the realm of his soul, which is the realm of interpreting his experience, he doesn't get it. You tell him the things of God, he's going, I don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. Damn. Does that mean he can't mentally take it in and say, well, you said this, 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 and this? Oh, yeah. And so there are unsaved men or women, for that matter, that study something that we might believe in. And they write a 300, 350-page doctoral dissertation to get their PhD in something. And they can recite what we say. They can kind of interact with it, but they disagree with it. They don't welcome this truth to be valid because they can't experience it because their life is limited to their soul. Do you get that? So he says, the soulish man does not welcome. That's what the word receive there. It's, the, it's a verb in the Greek that means to welcome a thing, to take it like somebody hands it to you and you go, hey, take that. You're taking it, welcoming it like that. The things, because they're moronic, they're foolishness to him because he's not able to know them because they are, now he uses the adjectival form of the word spirit. They are spiritually discerned or evaluated. That word value, uh, that's translated discern means to evaluate, to see value in it. It takes, it takes the spirit of God and it takes your exercise of the human spirit in connection with the spirit of God for you to see value in that thing. I was just talking when we were sitting at the table out out there. We're talking about my dad being a fur trapper, and you go to trapping conventions. Hope I'm not offending anybody online, but you go to these, and they make this. They make really stinky stuff, and you know what? There's a lot of people that they test that stuff out, and they go, "Oh my goodness, that is horrible! Oh, that's just the worst stuff in the world. Why would you do that?" But you know what? The trappers that know how valuable that stuff is for what they're doing, they open that up and going, that's some good stuff. <laughs> that's some good stuff. See, they see value in something that everybody else looks like. Why would you even bottle that? That's just disgusting, you know? Uh, so so you a person that has the right relationship to a thing can see the value in it. And what he says here, these things, and what things are those? Back in verse nine, things God's prepared for us that I hasn't seen, and the ear hasn't heard those things. He says it, they have to be spiritually evaluated for the, to see their value. Maybe it doesn't matter. Quick question on the soulish man. Yeah. Would that be an unbeliever or a believer that's being carnal? Or no, I think the scriptures, from what we can see, the scriptures only, only apply the term soulish to um, unbelievers. Believers, when it looks at believers, it either looks at them as spiritual or as Paul's going to do in the next chapter, it looks at them as being fleshly, operating in their flesh. What you're saying is this verse is exclusively referring to unbelievers. Verse 14 is, yes. Okay. Does that mean un, does that mean believers don't operate with their soul in this way? Yeah, that's one of the things, probably won't get to it tonight a whole lot, but that's one of the things eventually we're going to have to see in this study is, even you as Christians, we struggle sometimes with our soul because we let our soul take the lead instead of the spirit. And it's not that the soul is bad. It just has some weaknesses at the present time. And then he says in verse 15, but the spiritual man evaluates 
all things. Now, does that mean I evaluated the potatoes spiritually tonight? I evaluated the chili spiritually? I evaluated that cheese? No, that's not what that's about. The all things goes back to verse 9, all those things that God's prepared for those who love him. Those are the things that the spiritual man evaluates or discerns. But he's discerned, interestingly enough, he's evaluated by no man, no one. We go, I mean, we don't evaluate. This is what the verse is one of the verses I would say, good challenge to each one of us in terms of the way we get along with whatever believers we meet with, is we can really become uh, fruit inspectors. You know what a fruit inspector is? They pull that out of Matthew where Jesus says, by their fruits you shall know them. But you know what Jesus is talking about there in Matthew? He's talking about the teachers you listen to. And he says, look at their fruits. Because he was talking to the Jewish crowd about the teachers. And he says, look at their fruits. And essentially what he's telling you is your Jewish teachers, all they're looking out for is themselves. They don't care about you people. Look at their fruits. And if you see good fruit, then listen to them. But if you don't see any good fruit in what they're doing, if they tell you one thing, and yet all they're doing is marketing you, looking at you as, a, uh, as something that they're trying to treat as merchandise, psh, blow them off. Well, what he's telling us here is, you know, as regards spiritual Christians, nobody really can evaluate you. I don't go around and evaluate you. You don't go around and evaluate me. The only thing we can do is, is if you see me doing something that is blatantly contrary to the word of God, case in point, if... If I decide to cheat on my wife and go off with somebody else, you'd say, Psh, <laughs> <"Well>, okay, <laughs> this, guy is, uh, this guy is out of here. This guy is messed up at this mo mo moment in time. And this is, then, then you could make that call. But you know what? If, if you just look at me and you're doing this and going, well, I, bet, I bet Tim teaches that Bible study just because he likes people to listen to him. And I bet Tim just teaches that Bible study because he wants to show off how much he studied or something like that. I don't know what it is. thing is, you can't do that because you don't know what's going on inside my, my head and my heart. I might be doing it for the wrong reason. But as long as, it, as long as it looks right, you don't really know that. So that's why he's saying, you can't really evaluate a spiritual person. I can evaluate myself. I can look at myself and say, yeah, I'm relating to the spirit and this is the genuine fruit of the spirit. But you look at what you think might be the fruit of the spirit and it might all be fake potential that's why i think he says you can't you can't really evaluate each other but you do evaluate the things from god and you do evaluate yourself in that regard now why do we come over here because we have soul and spirit used as quant qualifiers for two different kinds of people unsaved who are soulish in verse 14 and some believers that are spiritual now i, I deal with one other issue here before we move on there's a big segment in Christianity, people that are real believers, that they think spiritual simply means you have the spirit. That's the way they understand spiritual. You simply you have the spirit. The problem with that is, is in the very next chapter, which I'm not going to go through and teach this, but he says, but I couldn't talk to you guys like spiritual. I'd talk to you as fleshly because you guys are fighting. You guys are going around saying, hey, like, let's put it in our modern context in our church. We're Tim people. We like Tim. Tim's better. Oh, no, no, no. We like Jim. Jim's class is better. No, no, no. Josh's class is better, you know? And if you follow, if you start following men, Paul says that's evidence that you're fleshly. You shouldn't, you should never follow men. Don't follow me. I will disappoint you. I will let you down eventually. I'm sorry to say. 
But uh, you will, I will do something someday to go, man, that guy's a real jerk right then. You know, that, that kind of stuff's going to happen. But it's also the fact that you ought to be doing what? Pay, paying attention to Christ. Okay. Next passage of Scripture I want to go to. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Yes. Galatians 6, 1, when it says, if anyone's caught in a trespass, do you know offhand what that, is that the word trespass or is that the word transgression? That's trespass, yes. Trespass. Yeah. And that's a believer that's caught in a trespass. Right, but trespasses were mental, I thought, right? And that's never dawned on me before. If anybody's caught in a trespass, you are a spiritual restorer, but if it's mental, how do you know, how do you know if it's a trespass? I, I think because the last verses, of read the last verse of chapter 5. Well, yeah, it's let us not become boastful, challenging one another, and being one another. Okay, so I think those, I'm not saying those are the exclusively, but I think those are the particularly the three trespasses that he's considering. And being boastful is not a sin. Can it lead to sin? Sure. What was the next one? Challenging one another. Challenging Provoking one another. Words. Yeah. What? And Provoking with words. And again, not a sin, but it, it, could, it could go down that path. And then the last one is envying. And you, you can't always see envy, but maybe you can. Maybe, maybe envy comes out sometimes in the things we say. So when you see another believer that's boastful, pretty boastful, uh, a, a believer that is at being antagonistic, provoking other people, is that all the better you can do? <laughs> really? You can't be as good as us and whatever it might be. Look at us. We all went and got circumcised because that was the, issue, the big issue in back of Galatians. So those kind of things in there um, if you understand that then what so what Paul is saying you see that kind of stuff so when you see those those are trespasses clearly they're plain there's nothing good about that which by the way says something again about how you teach when you think about teaching that you don't teach by provoking people in that way and so you see that if you're spiritual if you're spiritual you go to that person and try to help restore them which means you got to try to get their thinking back to hey who are we in Christ how do we look at one another? Does that answer that sufficiently? I think so. It's just that we even went over this verse on Monday in our Bible study and it never connected in my head that the trespass is mental, but it could still be something that shows without being a sin. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise, like you said, the spirit can't be judged by anybody else because nobody else can know the Lord except you. I, I, I wouldn't say that a trespass is, is always strictly mental, though. And I think there's an example, and I, it's in Matthew 6, and it's where Jesus is talking about prayer. And he says, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he goes on and he says, he relates that trespass to if you forgive men their debts. And I believe the trespass in that context is illustrated by the fact that you owe somebody something. But you go... Ah, uh, they're good. I I owe Lewis a hundred bucks, but he's fine. He's not gonna. He doesn't really need that. I I just and you don't pay him back, and you don't pay him back, and it's a trespass because you said you were gonna pay him back, but you don't because you're like, ah, oh, we're good, we're fine. I don't need to pay him back what I owe him, and and Jesus is saying, just you guys be on the other end. You just forgive that, forgive that debt, and that's a trespass because in their mind they have. They have justified this this action that isn't technically a sin. Now it could be it could become a sin, so might might resort to stealing, which kind of 
a little bit if you don't pay back a debt. In my mind, that's kind of stealing. But First Corinthians 15. Seems like we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but First Corinthians chapter 15. And let's go to verse 42. So in this same way, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So in this same way then is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in, in, in uh, corruption or decay. It's raised in, in, in decayability or in, in perishability or in corruption, depending on how your Bible is, is uh, translate. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a soulish body. Again, most of your Bibles have natural, but it's a soulish body. This body you live in right now is geared primarily to relate to and reflect the soul. You sense things and your body responds appropriately. It's raised a spiritual body. Now, the very fact that he says body here indicates it's not a wisp. Spiritual doesn't mean it's a spook. It's a wisp of smoke. It's an apparition. No, it's real. It's just going to be geared more towards the spirit. I have a spirit and a soul now. But my body's primarily geared now to reflect and relate to my soul. I can bring my spirit in and use it properly so that I can get my soul in the right place, which we will look at that later. Uh, so it, it uh, is sown a, a soulish body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a soulish body and there is a spiritual one. And therefore it stands written. It says the first man became... <clears throat> the first man... Adam became a life-giving soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But not the first is the spiritual, but the soulish, and afterward the spiritual. And then he goes on and tells us one other, as we have, as the first man is from the dust dusty, and the second man is out of heaven, in this same way, then as the man of dust, so then are those who are dust, and as is the heavenly, so are the heavenly. In other words, we, and then he goes on in verse 49, we've borne the image of the dusty, we're going to bear the image of the heavenly. So our image that we have right now is a dusty image, not an image that really reflects God's glory like God originally designed us. So there's something that was lost in the fall. So again, he's contrasting soul and spirit in here in terms of the nature of the body, something about the body. Last passage, Philippians chapter 1. Last passage for demonstrating this. we got a couple of other things. Wanna... What was Philippians 1. Get, go to verse 27 when you get there. And if you haven't noticed something on almost all of these, one of the problems we have is in almost every instant, most of your English Bibles do not translate the word soul, soul. They translate it by something else. And the reason they do that is because they do have quite a bit of reverence for the word spirit, but because they think spirit and soul are the same, they're trying to figure out, well, then how do we treat this word soul? If they represent it, you really begin to see this, this dichotomy between the soul and the spirit, that they're not one and the same thing, even though the line between them might sometimes be a little blurry for us. Philippians chapter 1 for those of you that haven't been through Philippians recently, uh, Paul's writing to a group of believers that have done a lot of good, great things, uh, and he's worked with these people, but what's happened is somebody's nose has got bent out of shape. Take a guess what part of them was probably involved in that. Their soul. Somebody's feelings were hurt. Their nose got bent out of shape over something. And so now you got some people in the church that don't want to serve with other people in the church. 
I'm not serving with them anymore. And so he says in verse 27, only conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ in order that whether coming and seeing you or being absent, I should hear the things about you that you, first of all, stand in one spirit. And then secondly, and work as a team together in one soul. And your Bibles have the word mind, but it's our word suke. Furthermore, that word contend, it's, uh, and I, I went back and checked myself. I haven't checked myself on this for a while, but I pulled off several tools just to check myself. This Greek word contend is, is the verb, it's built off the verb athleo. And Paul uses it, if you want to see it on your own time, 2 Timothy 2.5. Paul says all those who operate as an athlete, they only win the crown if they compete as an athlete according to the rules. In other words, if you cheat in whatever sport you're playing, you don't win. Okay, not supposed to anyway. Uh, that's this verb. And I looked this up in the Greek dictionary. So yeah, this always had to do with athletic competition, games that were played in the arena. Okay. This verb is not just athleto, it's soon athleto. And the, the preposition soon in the Greek means together with. So we're not talking about running a race. We're not talking about, um, we're not talking about an individual wrestler out wrestling against somebody else. We're talking about a team. We're talking about a team sport. We're talking about soccer. We're talking about football. We're talking about basketball. We're talking some, I don't know. If they had those sports back then, I bet they were playing soccer back in ancient Greece of some sort or another. I don't know, or Rome. I don't. I really don't know that. Don't take that. I'm not a historian in that regard, so I apologize. But the idea is, is compete together like a team or work together as a team in one soul. And I've used this illustration several times um, that when I was growing up, I had a, a friend that I went through high school with that played basketball for my dad. And when we were seniors, she wasn't doing one of the plays right. And my dad pulled her off the court and made her sit on the bench next to her and kind of said, you know, they, this is the way we're running the play and you're not doing it like this. And and uh, then he, I think, put her back in the game and then she did it again, pulls her back out. And when they went in at halftime, she didn't come back out. My dad went to put her in and she, the girls go, she left. She left at halftime. She went home. Her feelings were hurt. Her soul got in the way and she didn't she didn't want to play because she had a problem with one of her other teammates. And because she had a problem with another teammate out there, she wasn't doing what she was supposed to do. I mean, think about that. If you come down the court and you've got somebody over here that you can know hit a three-pointer, you know, 80% of the time and they are open, there's no one on them and you don't pass to them, everybody goes, what's the matter with you? If you do it one time, maybe you just missed it. You do this repeatedly, and I'm not saying that's what happened. This is a long time ago. This is almost 40 years ago, so I don't remember all the details. But I, but I just that always stands out in my mind about missing out on on this. This is back, by the way, in Iowa when you played three three on three. You had three girls on one end of the court that played. They played defense, and then three girls on the other played played offense. Any of you know what that is? Some of you probably don't even know what that is. But yeah. that was girls couldn't play full court basketball back then. That was just too hard for for ladies. <laughs> anyway, back to the real game here. That, to me, is just an illustration of sometimes, you know, when your soul gets hurt, when your emotions get hurt. And I've watched this happen among believers in churches lots of times, that people's feelings get hurt 
And then people don't want to work together with other people anymore. And in fact, it used to be when, when I was growing up, you lived in a community like this. Guess what? If you had problems with another believer in the church, you had two options. Either keep going to church or stay home. People don't do that anymore. My feelings get hurt by you. I'll pick up and I will drive to the other church on the other side of town or I'll drive to Moses Lake or I'll drive to Ellensburg. I'll, people, we're, we're, you know, and in fact, when we were in college, one of our, our campus pastor made the comment once. He says, you know, Baptists don't dance, but he says we do shuffle from one church to the next. <laughs> he says, because there are people that constantly, they've come into your church, they be there and they're like, oh yeah, we love this. And then their feelings would get bent out of shape just like they had been to the last place and they'd shuffle on after about a year and they'd shuffle on to the next church. And there were, where we went to college, there was like five churches that our campus group kind of had some connections with. And you just watch people shuffle between those five churches all the time because people's feelings got hurt because people didn't because Christians wouldn't take the time to figure out how to get along with other people. And that's what this verse is about. Paul says, I want to hear that. Yeah, you guys are standing in one spirit. Do you guys all know the truth? Do you guys got the facts? Yes. And you work together as a team in one soul. Really? I got to play ball with them? Really? I've got to be working to promote the gospel with that person? Do you remember what they did to me last year? So you can see right here, and in fact, interestingly enough, in the book of Philippians, the word soul, you don't see it very often in here, but the word soul in various forms occurs several times because they've got soul problems. Not really a spirit problem. They got the facts. But even though you know this is the way it is, every one of you knows what it's like sometimes when your soul and your emotions get out. And, and you think with your soul, sometimes you can be pretty irrational. Sometimes you can be pretty irrational. Well, you're, you are irrational, I guess, in the, realm, in the realm of your soul. So, anyway. So, 1 Thessalonians, Hebrews chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, and Philippians chapter 1. Five texts in the New Testament. Five texts in the New Testament in which it uses spirit and soul. And it treats them as two distinct things. So even though a lot of people say, oh, they're all the same, they're not the same. Where one ends and the other begins, yes, sometimes fuzzy to us, but they are different. And hopefully you were able to see, as we were looking at this tonight, you were able to see that there are some problems related to this, this passage in particular here in Philippians 1.27 is a good illustration that sometimes in a church... I mean, where were the Philippians going to, if they didn't get together with these people, where were they going to go to church? I mean, there weren't any other options at that time. Now, you know, like I said, people are going, I stay home and I don't, I don't even know who they, who you would watch on TV anymore. But I used to know people, I stay home and I watch back in my day, Rex Humbard. That was, there weren't a lot of TV preachers when I was growing up, but that's the way people do that kind of stuff. So, so there are ways that people people respond to some of these things. So as we already said at the beginning, the key difference between these is that the soul is, has to do with your senses, what you can sense and take in and how you make judgments based on your senses. But connected with that then is, are also the emotions that go along with that. So there are kind of, shall we say, physical sensory emotions versus the spirit that says this, 
I'll give you an illustration of a sensory emotion. And some of you probably know know what this like if you've visited different places that are pretty cool. I haven't visited a lot of cool places that are awe-inspiring. But when we were on our honeymoon, we went to exciting, exotic Minneapolis, Minnesota. <laughs> and we went on a Saturday evening, and then we went back on Monday because we went on Saturday night. We made it for, for mass. <laughs> we, we totally, oh, that's right. Catholics have mass on Saturday night. But we went to St. Paul's Basilica in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've been there when I was growing up. It's a really cool, it's a really cool uh, building. But it's one of those buildings that's huge and vast and these arches, beautiful arches overhead. The architecture is really something to behold, having never got to see great European architecture. And you walk up there, and have you ever beheld architecture, something that actually physically makes you shiver? I mean, there's no cold breeze. You're just looking at it. You're just like, oh, and it just gives you the goosebumps all over. That's a really good example of a sensory soulish emotion that you can get, in that case, from taking in the beautiful architecture in this structure. Well, that's because I live with that all the time, hon. Always. <laughs> I didn't win that battle, did I? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> there, how was that? No, I'm sorry. I'm not going to try anymore. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, sweetie. So anyway, um, soul and spirit. So that's your soul. The spirit, remember, then, is that part of you by which you think outside of your realm of experience. So it's the way you relate to things. You objectively know facts. You objectively know truth. And you relate to those things on that level outside of your realm of experience. And that's it's really important sometimes because what's going to happen is that that is going to anchor. This, this is going to anchor it. And this is what we're going to end with tonight, then. And I told you we'd see this before we left. Hebrews chapter 6. Remember we saw in chapter 4 that there was a soul and spirit. He brings them up. I think because we have a soul and spirit issue in this, in this letter. But notice at the end of Hebrews 6. And I think we looked at this a couple months ago when we were meeting Sunday morning out, outside. This is one of those Sundays we're out in this underneath the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the sail out at uh, Josh and Faye's with the orchard at our back out there. I think I remember going over this. These people are remember having this kind of this emotional struggle with leaving Judaism uh, and just being part of the church, which is what God wants them to do. And he says, let's go to verse 18, Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Uh, we need to go back in verse 17. It says, By which even God desiring to display to us, to the heirs of promise, the unchangeableness of his, his determination, uh, he is sworn by a wrath. Or excuse me, by an oath. Pardon me. By an oath. Whoa. It's getting dim over here trying to read. Swore by an oath. Okay. Uh, now, the thing is, God doesn't need to swear an oath. If God says it, is that good enough? Yeah. But if God says, I swear that I will do that, I mean, that makes it two things now. And God doesn't even have to do that. So that he says that by two unchangeable things, by which it is impossible for God to lie. That was the first thing. The second one was the swearing the oath. We should have a strong encouragement, those of us that have fled to take hold of the hope that is set before us. And that hope has to do with Christ having gone into heaven and entered, which he's going to say, which we have as an anchor for the soul. An anchor that is secure and is firm and is entered 
inside, inside the veil or the curtain. Remember, the Jewish temple had a big curtain across it so that people couldn't go into that back holy of holies except for the priest. He's referring to Christ having entered the heavenly. Upon his death and resurrection, he then entered back into the heavenly heavenly a throne room up there, and he went through what Scripture is picturing as a curtain. Later on, it's going to tell that's his physical nature, but he entered in up there. And what he's getting at in Hebrews is, guess what? And you guys all know this. We, we take this for granted. But can you talk to God anytime, anywhere? Yeah. Do you, have to, do you have to come downtown? Do you have to go to your church and go inside and walk down front and go down by the platform and <laughs> kneel in front of maybe a cross that's on the... No, you don't have to do any of that. We all know that. But guess what? If you were a Jew and you wanted to talk to God, where did you go? You had to make sure your prayer went to Jerusalem and it went to the temple and you had a priest offer it for you. They don't need that anymore. They can all talk to God without a priest. And that was a, that was a, a that, that kind of was shaking up their world for Paul to have to say this. But what he said is that, that assurance that you, because that hope is entered in and you can go. This is what he's going to get to in the book of Hebrews. You can go. He's going to repeat this again. Let us go. Let us come before it. Let us draw near again and again. He says, that'll anchor your soul. Why? Because your soul is going back and forth. Oh, I know I should do what God wants, but I miss my Jewish family. And, oh, but I, and they're back and forth being tossed. And he says, this will anchor your soul. You had a comment? No. Oh, Gary did. I'm sorry. Yeah, you say that happened a long time ago, but when I was in Harborview, when I got out, I had a, a, at least two people say they sent money to Rome to buy a prayer for me that the priest would, would do for me. Yeah. And aren't we glad that we don't have to send money to anybody and I, none of us have to go to any particular place? Yeah, also, when we were in Jerusalem, there were people putting little notes in the prayer wall. That's kind of like the same thing. Which is supposedly the foundation of the... Uh, temple. The temple. temple, yeah. So again, your soul, your soul needs an anchor. Why? Because your soul can get battered about, and it has a tough time sometimes with uh, with our experiences and our circumstances down here. So, any other comments or questions? What did you say is the anchor in this text? I would say that it, it's not Jesus Christ Himself, because He says. I didn't finish verse. I didn't get to verse twenty. He says, "Where our forerunner Jesus has entered." According to the as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, so it's not Christ Himself; it's our ability to draw near to God because Jesus Christ is there. When I come to God, I come through the person of Christ. I don't come on my merit; I come on His merit. Any time. So if you, I always put it this way: Let's say I just messed up. I just I'm not messed up. That's code for sin. I just don't want to say a sin, so I'm going to say I messed up. Let's just say I just sinned, and then. Then somebody calls and tells me, hey, so-and-so needs prayer. And I'm like, well, I can't pray for them. I just sinned. You know what? You actually can. If you just adjust your thinking and say, wait a second. God, I sinned. That wasn't what you wanted me to do. But you know what? I come before you not because I didn't sin or because I did, because I'm better than anybody else. I come because you see me in Christ at your right hand and you give me access to, into your presence because of him, not because of me. That's the that's that's the that's like the whole foundation of what the book of Hebrews is resting on.
Because it's not based on what you do or don't do. That's right. It's based on who Christ is. And it's not indirect, it's direct. Yes, it is. Whereas in Judaism, you went to a priest. That's why I'm, I'm still convinced. I, and I actually did come across another writer uh, a few years ago that kind of took the same thing. This is where we got a lot of our Psalms from. That, that people like David, they had prayers that they wanted to offer to God. And they would wake up in the night praying and they're crying or whatever they're doing. And they'd write these things down and then they would take them to the temple. And have the priest take these in before God. So, I... And I just I've thought this for years, and then I came across this in a book, and they said that that's the origin probably of some of our psalms, maybe not all of them, because some of them were songs that were sung up at the temple, but some of them were our prayers. So we don't have to do that, isn't that something? Anybody else? Yes. Is that important that I know the difference? I think so. Okay. So say what the question is. And these are these are extra biblical terms. They're not in the Bible. Right. Christianity are all Christians, all real believers in Jesus Christ. Okay. Say that again. Christianity. Christianity are all real believers, all people that really believe in Jesus Christ. Christendom is people that name the name of Christ but they don't really believe in him. So That's what I'm saying. It includes those people too. Yes. So, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you might, you might go like, we, we're, we're in a church that has a name Baptist out front. That doesn't mean you're all Christians at people that go to there, you know? So it, so it, you could, what? It doesn't even mean you're all Baptist. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't mean any of that. But I'm just I'm just saying that sometimes I grew up always figuring if you were Baptist, I must have went to heaven. You know, I just assumed that. And then I got older and I found out oh, there were people that went to Baptist churches. In fact, people that showed up at ours once in a while and they weren't saved. They weren't believers. They'd say good things about God, but they never really wanted to ever believe that he did it all. Right. It, 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 let's put it this way. It's a huge gamut of people. There's a lot of people that fall within that. And I associate it with, like, religious. Yes, religious. thank you. All your Catholics, yeah, yeah. all your Jehovah, all your Mormons, all your yeah. Baptists, and they or they may not believe the gospel. Right. Yeah. So, like, yeah, yesterday I heard that 2.4 2 billion Christians, which probably does show up on the census. But Josh, Josh and Faye will tell you, most of the people on those islands are, even if they name the name of Christ in some way or another, most of them are animists. Does that help? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Christianity, believers, Christendom, believers, and unbelievers that 
in some way are religious in a, in a Christian kind of sense, broadly or even sometimes narrowly. I've met unbelievers that are super, super legalistic and better at doing Christian kind of stuff than most of us are. <laughs> because in their mind, their eternal salvation hangs on their being this perfect person in some way. Yes. Moralism. Anybody else? Okay. I'm going to stop that part of this. What did I do with it here? <laughs>